Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Today on the show, we had Sydney Dixon. She has been serving as a Utah State Superintendent of Public Education since June of 2016. She has worked in counseling, teaching, and leadership capacities in the Davis, Granite, and Murray School Districts for decades. She holds a doctoral degree in education leadership and policy from the University of Utah and a master's of education degree from Brigham Young University in educational leadership and administration. Her bachelor's degree in elementary education and teaching is from Utah State University. Go Aggies. We had a great discussion. Let's get proximate. Welcome back to First Lady and Friends podcast. We are here with a very special episode. Um, our guest today is Sid Dixon. She is she has been the Utah State Superintendent of Public Instruction since June of 2016. She, I could go on and on. Um, we'll we'll do more of her of her bio, um, but I'm going to let you, uh, Sid, tell us a little bit about you. Thanks for being here. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, First Lady Cox. I uh, have been an educator for, I'm in my 41st year, so I've been at this a long time, and I'm a real proud rural gal. I was raised in Antimony, Utah, and I just am going to leave it at that because I want people to pull out their map and find it if they don't know where that is. Look it up. It's beautiful. I've been there. My daughter actually just went to a youth conference there this summer. Excellent. So you know where, though, right? I do know where. Now, (laughs) back in the day, which people my age like to say, um, there were about 100 people in our community. It was uh, agrarian. We were all farmers and just helped each other out. And, um, you know, we relied on one another. And going to Richfield or Panguitch was a very exciting event in our home. (laughs) That's right. And now they have this ranch there. That's where my daughters stay. They have an incredible, I can't remember what it's called, Rocking Our Ranch. Rocking Our Ranch. Yes. Great place. So it's it's a really cool place. So I want to get back into this about your background. Let's talk about, so you grew up in Anamone. Um, is that where your parents were from? What, you know, what, tell us a little bit both, about your Both of my your parents, yes. Both of my parents were um, from there originally. And I come from good pioneer stock and they settled in. Wayne County and in Garfield County and Paiute County, uh, and my parents both are graduates of Paiute High. I come from a family of five, and um, we moved to the metropolis of St. George when I was in fifth grade. And I remember thinking it was such a big place because I went to a two-room schoolhouse where my grandmother was my teacher, 
And there, I had a huge class in Anamone Elementary of seven kids. And my little <laughs> brother, two years younger, was solo in his grade level. So then you come to this place where there are two schools in two fifth grade classes to choose from. And it, it just felt very big to me. Now, when I go to visit my parents and my family and our second home in St. George, I, I marvel at the growth yeah. and remember thinking when I was a child hearing that the um, Latter-day Saint Temple, the St. George Temple would be in the center of the community as predicted by Brigham Young. And we lived at the edge of town. And I just remember thinking that was ludicrous. And here that valley has just exploded, but it's so beautiful. And I'm so grateful to live in Utah and really proud to just have been born and raised in Utah. It's amazing. It's an it, amazing, beautiful place. It is amazing. And Anamone is not that close to St. George. People forget um, there's this whole section in between um, Payson and St. George that people kind of forget about. <laughs> right. So, uh, I love that. Um, so what influenced you um, as, as you were growing up to go into education? I was not a, um, I was not focused on education. In fact, I come from a family who of very smart people, very hardworking, smart, smart people who were not college oriented. Uh, my parents didn't go to college. So I didn't really have that push of that vernacular in my home. People didn't talk about their college experience, but it's something I knew I wanted to do. And my parents were very supportive of me going there uh, or, or going on to uh, further my education. So I thought I would graduate psychology or maybe English and go on to law school. I just knew that I wanted to make a difference. And um, I wanted to right the wrongs that I saw and stand up for the underdog. That was kind of the core of who I was as a kid and a teenager. So I thought law would be the way to do that. And I went up to Utah State after spending two years at Dixie. And so Aggies to go Aggies for sure and took a, <laughs> uh, an education class. And just the minute a little kid sat on my lap and said, will you read me a story? I was hooked. And I just kind of knew from that moment, uh, watching the magic and the, the um, science and the art that goes into teaching, it was just so inspiring to me. And I knew it really was the way to make a difference. Education changes the world. So that's that's sort of my backstory of how I entered into teaching. Did you have, I, I, did you have somebody that influenced you to do that? I mean, sometimes we go through and we have teachers. I mean, obviously you had not as many teachers, maybe as as some of us, because of the small rural area you were in. But is was there someone along the way that really maybe inspired you in that way? I think my grandmother, who was my teacher um, for several years, she. She was inspirational to me. She would create magic out of every little thing. And now there's research to back up all of the things that she used to do with us. I remember asking her. Um, she lived to be 103, so I got to spend a lot of time with her. And I would ask her, um, you know, how, Grandma, how did you learn how to teach kids to read? Back then, I think she went to like a two-year teacher college program, and she didn't even have to do that until she was um, older. But um, she she just did so many things intuitively that really are backed by research today. So I think she instilled that love um, of teaching in me. She had 65 grandchildren, 11 children and 65 grandchildren. And there are many teachers in our family. And I know it was from her influence. Um, She was fun and joyful and positive. And part of our learning was – what we would we would call life skills. We would call social emotional learning. Uh, we had community circle. 
uh, she taught us how to knit and crochet. So there are like just a lot of really interesting things that I learned in her classroom. And then uh, forward, fat, moving forward, I think I had a couple of teachers who tapped me and said, you're not living up to your potential. You can do more. Okay. You know, you're smarter than, than you're giving yourself credit for. Um, redo this work and do it well. And I had Mrs. Blackham, who was uh, a business and um, I, I don't know what her call would have been then, business and marketing teacher, I guess. And she was very professional and really taught us to be polished and do our best. So I've had some teachers along the way that I think brought out the good in me and, and I saw the influence they had in helping me shape my image of self. That's really interesting because, um, you know, obviously I grew up in a, in a rural area too, and I had similar experience in that people around me, education wasn't, and not in my family, but, but the community, uh, that people, education was not a priority and in a lot of ways still isn't, um, in, in rural areas. So I, I think it's beautiful that you, that you picked up on that. Do you, do you see a difference between rural and urban um, areas when it comes to education? That's a great question. And I have had the opportunity to travel to all 41 of our districts and many charter schools over the last four or five years. Of course, during the pandemic, um, I didn't get out to as many schools. But I, I have noticed in our rural areas that they are extremely innovative. You know, they, they have to be. They don't have the opportunities that a lot of our kiddos have in urban and suburban spaces to be hands-on. So uh, bringing bringing digital tools into schools, uh, being able to take advanced courses, including concurrent enrollment, has been great for our rural communities. So they're investing really wisely in technology and opportunities for our students. Um, And I really do see a lot of innovative practices and great caring cultures in schools. You walk into a rural school and the climate has its own unique sense of kids really being part of the culture of the school and and that their voice is included and they have a lot of opportunities because there are fewer students. So every teacher in a rural school is a coach or um, an advisor. So I think the adults in our rural schools are hyper-involved, meaning that they they are busy well beyond the classroom, every, almost every teacher. So it's more of a community approach to education where in our urban and suburban settings, they're also doing great things, but it's more isolated sometimes to the school and not so much out into the community. Yeah, I can see that a lot. Um, I'm just now um, beginning to experience um, an urban environment for education with my daughter because we've been in a rural district all these years and now my daughter's here in Salt Lake and um, the, the the thing that has struck me is very um, I don't know it's it's interesting I'm not sure if it's good or bad but I haven't decided <laughs> but there's a, a sense of community in rural schools because I mean like my daughter's been friends with her same group of friends since she was in preschool and they, you know, it's my neighborhood. It's my, you know, the friends I go to church with. It's it's all these. And then they move on together. And so then they're in high school together. And it's and it's her uncle that's the counselor. And it's her cousins that she goes to school with. And you right. see this in rural areas. And then in, in urban areas, um, you know, you go to your, your congregation here in Salt Lake. And 
maybe one of the kids goes to your same school, but you know they all go to different schools, and and I don't know. Do you think that helps or hurts the, that sense of community? What do you think about that? Well, I just think it's different. Context mm-hmm. matters. If you're in an urban or suburban setting, you might have more choice than you would in a rural setting for where you go to school. In a rural setting, it's a sense of community in, in that, as you just mentioned, the school uh, blends out into the community and vice versa. It's sort of the center or the hub yeah. of the community where um, schools in an urban and suburban setting, they are um, – they're in the community – but there there are blurred boundaries. So yeah. you have kids from all over the valley who might be attending a school. Well, I mean, there are, there are boundaries drawn, but they are permeable. So there is a blend of students. And, and it's, I mean, in some ways it's good, you know, in that kids can mix from a variety of neighborhoods and have different experiences. It's more challenging in that sometimes those relationships can be fleeting or only um, – only at the school setting. So I, I I don't know that I would establish a value to it. It's just different. That's amazing. I'm glad you said that. It is, I think, I always say there there are trade-offs when people ask me, you know, coming from, from rural and coming here. Um, you know, my, my boys were were involved in so many different things. Whereas, you know, coming up to Salt Lake, I'm thinking, okay, where, where can Emma Kate, where can my daughter sort of fit? Where can she find her, her niche? And so, I mean, I think it's really important that we, we sort of build that sense of community around our children and make sure that they feel that. So I so appreciate this conversation. Um, and I want to continue it and talk a little bit more uh, about your education journey. And we'll be right back. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. We're back here with Sid Dixon. She is the superintendent of public instruction here in the state of Utah and um, just just amazing and also a dear friend. Um, we've gotten to know each other and, and you've been a mentor to me. So I so appreciate um, anytime I'm with you, I feel like I'm learning something and learning how to be better in, in education. So um, we so appreciate you being here. Let's talk a little bit about maybe what makes Utah unique um, in education. I think the symbol of the beehive is so apropos, and I don't know if um, it's just since we um, established ourselves as a state, it's always been this way, but we tend to work together on behalf of a cause, whatever that cause is. And education is one of those that I think people are genuinely invested in in our state. So we, um, you know, we may not be... um, rank high on the funding list, right. but we, we definitely rank high on interest and parent involvement. Um, I think that we can always do a better job of making sure educators feel honored. But by and large, we're an educated state and we're one where um, people pitch in and, and they're willing to help and do whatever. If somebody says we need shoes for kiddos at our school, somebody's always willing to make that happen or fill backpacks or make sure kids are fed 
Um, you know, during the pandemic, I can't tell you how many people called our office saying, we want to make sure kids don't go hungry. How do we go about making sure that they're fed? So people genu- genuinely care um, about kids. And we have a lot of them. Yes. So <laughs> that, that definitely makes us unique for sure. Yeah. I um, I think people would be interested to know uh, the structure of of Utah's education system here in the state. And it's different than than I think people realize. Um, the governor gets a lot of a- attention and I would say in a lot of ways a lot of blame when it comes to the education system in the state. But tell us a little bit about why maybe that isn't as fair as it as it maybe should be. <laughs> well, every state has a different structure. You're absolutely right. Um, and we have a structure that is – there are a lot of hands on the wheel when it comes to education. But the governance structure is local first, which is where it should be. So uh, schools are governed by local, locally elected nonpartisan school boards and they select their superintendent and the superintendent hires principals, etc. So it's very locally driven. At the state level, we have a now partisan elected school board. That's um, just happened recently due to a court case. So it's um, partisan elections, 15-member board, and they have governance over rules and policies. Uh, general control and supervision is the way that it's laid out in, in the state constitution. And the 15-member elected board appoint me um, as their state uh, official The legislature has a role in that they um, also provide policy from a legislative standpoint and they determine the funding for our state. So they play a very significant role. The the governor um, has a platform and can influence policy and funding but has this ancillary role. And I am grateful to your husband, our good governor, who truly – walks the talk when it comes to education. He he has been invested as a lieutenant governor, but he um, he does use his platform to show up and to um, to to really push forward policy that benefits schools. So we all work in concert together. Our hands are all on the wheel, but we do have sort of this trickle down of policy. And um, I hope both a, a bottom-up and a top-down when it comes to, to innovation and support and practice. But things happen locally. So parents, um, for example, when they want to solve a problem, it should be teacher first, then principal, district, et cetera. And I'm sure, as you mentioned, sometimes a, a frustrated parent might call the governor directly. I know they call our office directly wanting that solved. But we do have this, this good structure. And in some states, it's um, – it's different. You know, the governor has a different role over education, but our constitution lays it out in a certain way. And governance is always a topic of conversation on the Hill. I'm sure it will be again next year as people try to figure out who really is driving the bus when it comes to state education and, and where is everybody's role in that space. Yeah. And I think, you know, just like everything else, the states are, are the, you know, the laboratory of democracy and laboratory of of education and how how we want to do things and I do you do you find um, some you know networking um, successes with other states and other um, superintendents of states? Absolutely, I belong to the um, Council of Chief Chief State School Officers (CCSSO) in short. Um, I am a member of their board, 
And it is an organization that is just made up of um, state chiefs, including our territories. So, you know, you think of the Virgin Islands and Guam and Puerto Rico, and we all work together and we discuss our problems and solution and different policy streams and provide resources and tools. And, and it's a lifeline for many of us. You know, when we were going through this past year, just being able to turn to my peers and ask them how they were dealing with certain situations or have somebody call me and say, where did you get all of your technology? You know, how come you're ahead? What's your plan? And to be able to help and share and support each other has been phenomenal. Uh, And it's not just for chiefs, you know, there are deputies and um, other employees at the state agency that also have networks with their peers across the country and it's it's very helpful to share and to learn from each other. And we're we're doing many things in Utah that people are looking to and asking about as well. Yeah, I think we've been pretty. I mean, even in our little rural district, I mean the the technology, the um, I I feel like our we're we're pretty far ahead as far as that goes, which is you know pretty amazing. Um, I know there's that's not always the case, right? Everywhere, but but it's it's important to point that out. What are some other uh, maybe things that you're proud of that we've that you've accomplished here in the state, or that we have as as educators or as an education community? For me, it's always a we. I can't yeah. think of anything I've done alone. I just surround myself with amazing people and try to to um, hold up examples of great things that are happening out in our schools. I'm really proud of our digital teaching and learning work. I think we were able to pivot very quickly. I know pivot's an overused word with the pandemic, but I would say we had moderate success based on what I've heard from other states in being able to get tools in the hands of kids and, and get them home in that March of 2020 when when everything closed down. Last year, we had some blended models. We had some families learning only online. And our you know we learned a lot of lessons along the way, but our teachers have engaged in professional learning, so they're better equipped. But we at least had about 70% of our students who had who had tools. And then we've had a lot of great innovation around uh, developing networks. Murray and San Juan District have both received national attention for some of the things they did. I'm really proud of our dual immersion program. Yeah. Um, I think we're a, a, a lighthouse to the nation in the way that so many of our students are able to engage in learning a second and sometimes a third language and can graduate from, co- from high school with an associate's in a language. Um, so I'm very proud of the, the investment that we've made there. Um, I, I'm proud of the collaborative, the collaborative efforts with um, business and with health. I think we're doing some great things in those spaces. And then we've launched Portrait of a Graduate, which for us has truly the, the map that we're following, having kids master certain content, including digital literacy and financial literacy, becoming autonomous learners, engaging in creative thinking and problem solving and collaboration and communication, and then finding purpose in life and, and in school and engaging in service and developing empathy. So that map puts our kids on the road to awesome. Wow, that's amazing. And and you and I have talked a little bit about this portrait of graduate, and it's what kind of gets me excited. It's it's you know part of you know our initiative. We want to we want to help push that as well. And so, talk a little bit about how that came about. I know um, we've had uh, pushes from from um, companies and organizations that are saying you know we want what we need is better prepared um, humans uh, for for the world that they're going to face. Talk a little bit about how this portrait of a graduate came to be. 
Sure. Um, you know, we our board established a strategic plan, which I personally have been so grateful for because it, it kind of keeps you moving forward and, and you know where you're, you're going. You know what the goals are. And we hold ourselves accountable for that plan. And the four goals that we were fo- focused on or four areas of focus, I should say, um, are uh, early childhood learning, um, effective teachers and leaders in every classroom, safe and healthy schools, and then personalized learning. And we we leaned into personalized learning, not just focused on technology, but thinking about how do we develop a system that truly is a personal experience for each student based on their needs. So um, we were also looking at trying to move away from some some of the things like seat time. I call them the three Bs, um, bells, buses, and but time, you might scrap that seat time. <laughs> Bottoms. <laughs> Bottoms. <Chairs. laughs> bottom time. Um, and those, you know, that's driven a lot of the way we do schooling. So getting away from that and and um, making time a variable instead of a constant and thinking more about competencies, that trying to create a more personalized approach really led us to portrait of a graduate and the development thereof. And it, it's been done by uh, by teachers. Uh, we've had community input input from from certainly our business community and a lot of survey work and just a couple of years of input to develop what we have now and and we have teachers who came together during the pandemic digitally to develop competencies so it's really an organic aspirational document that we want other districts and charters to take and say what is our portrait of a graduate what does it look like in our setting I love that um I think education is always better when we adapt it to our you know, unique situations. And so I think that's beautiful that, that, that this can be a framework that other other districts and, and everyone can use. Um, I want to continue this conversation and talk. You, you mentioned a little bit about teachers and a little bit about this COVID year. Um, I want to I want to keep going there. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We want to continue our conversation with Sid Dixon, our state superintendent of public instruction. I have to go back up and read, <laughs> say the whole title. Um, let's let's talk about our teachers. Um, we've had some experiences, and we've talked about this on the podcast, um, meeting with teachers, talking to teachers, mostly listening to teachers. Tell us about this year. I've had personal experiences with my kids' teachers. Um, reaching out to me and saying, this is literally the hardest year in my entire career. Um, You talked about pivoting a little bit earlier. And let's talk a little bit about what you've seen teachers do this year. Well, I think, you know, there were two phases. So the first phase was closing schools down in March. And, you know, first we thought it might be two weeks and then maybe another week. And that, that news to them that you're not going to see your kids in person again through the end of the year. That that was a that was hard, and it was a point of having to grieve the rituals of the end of the year, and that that was a hard loss, I think, for not only our students but our teachers. So coming into the fall, they were anticipating what will it look like. Um, you know, I think they did a lot in the summer trying to get ready, and then this the year of masks and distancing and hygiene so much of their energy was put in trying to keep kids healthy yeah and and themselves and themselves right and so there was this thread of fear i think just fear and the unknowing and 
um, and yet trying to do all the great things that they do. And their lesson plans had to change. They had kids um, at home. They had hybrid models going. They had face-to-face. And let's not forget that most of our teachers are are parents. And so they're dealing with all of their issues at home as well. So they had all of these factors that were just heavy and it was hard and and they they rocked it. I mean, they did their very best and I'm amazed at the work that they did. And I I think for me some of the silver linings are the things that they learned that they wanted to change. Mm-hmm. Um things that maybe they'd been doing that weren't as important. Um I loved how important relationships became. They've yeah. always known that intuitively, but it became even more apparent and all the individual um, attention that they were giving to each student and to each family. And the things I saw them do going above and beyond were just so, um, so incredibly inspiring. So I, I was so happy for them to have a little bit of of a break this summer. Yeah. But, you know, typical of our teachers, they they rested for a nanosecond and yeah. then they were <laughs> right back to planning and engaging in professional learning and being together. And I, and I had the opportunity to be with teachers over the summer and they just had energy and enthusiasm and talking about what they'd learned and what they were going to do differently. So they, they just did an incredible job in the, by far the hardest year ever. And, and I, I think we did well. Yeah. Um, you know, I just, I'm very proud of them. And I'm, even though we're facing some similar things this fall, I think they'll take those lessons learned and do even better. You know, we've, heard in the last little while that we have several, many, many hundreds of um, healthcare workers that left the profession, um, the stress and the chaos and the, you know, health issues that they had as a result of, of COVID and, and this last 18 months. Um, we kind of anticipated that teachers, we might see the same thing in teachers have we? We haven't seen the exodus that was predicted. Yeah. Um, I, I think as I've talked to many of our education leaders, they're hiring about the same number that they've hired in the past. But times have changed from uh, when I started my career. You know, We have teachers going into the profession, not planning on teaching for 20 or 30 years. So it, we're in this different space where we're turning over more teachers than than we did a decade or two decades ago anyway. Um, so, And that's true across the country. So I think it's important for our teachers to get the kind of support that they need to make sure that they have the working conditions that are conducive for them um, to want to stay because they really want to make a difference and they want to stay. But, um, you know, we need to make sure we pay our teachers well and provide conditions for them so that they really can do their best work. And that's, you know, that's on us as a state and a community to do that for them. I agree. And I think most of us who are parents realize this year, um, I hope we appreciate the teachers in our lives more than we ever have before. I hope we did before. But I certainly am one of those that just was in awe at at the heart um, that they that they taught with, that they worked with, that they, you know, they I. I've told this story at, at, at a few of the events I've spoken at, but I had a, a teacher write my daughter a little note at the end of the year just talking about how 
you know, just really a note of encouragement after her tough year. Um, So it's just, you know, it's, it's beautiful. Teachers, you know, obviously have a special place in my heart because my mom was an educator. My grandmother, my grandmother was an educator and, um, and I myself was in special education. So I want to talk about special education and um, what are you seeing in, in that field right now? Are you, through the pandemic, uh, there are extra issues with, and this is what people forget about our, our kids with with um, all different abilities. Maybe even had more issues um, during the pandemic than than people realize. Well, it goes back to the personalization of services and for our students with disabilities. That has always been the case that they need specialized services, and it's providing them with what they need to make sure that they can access access the the content and and what they need. So part of the challenges during the pandemic, especially again, the spring of 2020, but even going further, uh, some of our kiddos who are medically fragile and need additional services and not being able to get to school and not being able to have those those services in their home, uh, occupational therapy, physical therapy, a lot of those support systems were suddenly um, absent in that child's life. And, and it sets some of our kids back from where they were making progress. That's that's a reality. Um, so, you know, digital tools help a lot. And sometimes that that is actually a strategy for some of our students with disabilities, having some adaptive technology. But it also made it very hard when what a lot of our students with disabilities need, especially um, those who have disabilities that are a little bit more or different abilities that are a little bit more severe um, and they need a lot of services. It, it, it was a challenge. And I, I think that um, our families know that well yeah. and will be trying to make that up. But, you know, you just, there are just some things that you have to say, we'll do the best we can with where the child is at moving forward. And so I know that it's it's all hands on deck for our students with disabilities, for sure. And and providing um, – there's an acronym of multi – MSST but, or multi-systems of support. Yeah. Um, so we hear about those multi-tiered systems of support a lot, and it's such an important uh, way to approach educating all students, but especially students with disabilities. So they they should get what they need in the regular classroom so that they can be with their peers. But sometimes students need a little extra layer of support and and then some intense support. And that that intense support um, was lacking during the pandemic for many of our students. Yeah, I I remember as a, you know, a student teaching, I remember being in the classroom all day with with my kiddos um and some of them had pretty severe um disabilities. A lot of them, you know, had, you know, were not mobile, a lot of them were nonverbal and and just just tough. I mean, it's it's tough. They're beautiful and they're wonderful, but I do remember thinking about those parents and you know i i was exhausted and i would send this kid home each day after school thinking well i can go home and rest but but that parent you know that's a day in and day out so i can imagine during the pandemic if you've got this child home and and the amount of stress the extra stress we were all stressed in our own ways but that just seems to have added a a, a completely huge burden on some of these families right um Sid, this has been such a pleasure for me. I guess I I just want to end 
with um, asking this, what do you wish people knew about Utah education? Well, um, I think people do know this, so I, I don't know that it's a wish, but I I wish that um, we would understand that education takes all of us, that it's all in. And it doesn't matter what state you live in. So if we, I'll go back to where I started. If we are the beehive state um, and we're busy and we're buzzing about and working together in the hive, then it should be um, that we're all in focused on what each individual student needs. And whether that's just those basic needs of food and shelter and clothing or it's making sure that our students, regardless of demographics, have access to rigor and to um, you know challenging coursework and opportunities for internships and um, prepared pathways to be successful in the world of work or going on to higher education, that we collectively as a community, whether we have students in the system or not, we play a part in that. And um, if we want to continue to have a thriving economy – then we all have to support public education. It, it, it's critical to the success of our state. Absolutely. That's as upstream as it gets as <laughs> so we take care of our, our kids here in the state. Um, thank you, Sid. This has been such a pleasure for me um, to, to, again, learn more from you. Um, we're so appreciative of all the work that you're doing in the state and for our kiddos in, in the state. And and uh, we, we so appreciate the mentorship, I do, that, that you've provided me. So thank you for being here today. Well, thank you, First Lady, for being so dedicated and devoted to our kiddos and to public education. We really appreciate it. You can find Sid Dixon on Twitter at DixonSid and also at UT Public Ed. Thanks for being a friend.